Welcome to Call Your Next Witness, uh, the Wade Clark Mulcahy produced podcast. My name is Brian Gibbons, and I am recording from my office in Lower Manhattan. And my guest today is uh, a LinkedIn friend who I've never met in person, uh, but uh, a fellow former prosecutor from Greensboro, North Carolina, Kristen Halkiotis. Kristen, welcome. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and I am talking to you from your office in in Greensboro today. I assume that is correct. You know, you know what's so funny about the podcast world and how it brings people together for situations just like this. We are talking to each other on Microsoft Teams, where if you were present in my office sitting next to me, I'm not even sure I would know how to record this. Um, but but such is life. Um, so first things first, uh, Kristen, so you and I were just speaking before we started recording, and I am embarrassed to admit that you are now the third author of a book called Networked that I am that I have had on as a guest, and I didn't realize that until five minutes ago. Third time's the charm. <laughs> uh, what, can you tell me a little bit about the book? Sure. So in 2020, right around the time the pandemic hit or a little bit before, I got into a networking group on LinkedIn, a private message pod with about 50 other female lawyers around the country, all in different practice areas, um, really supportive and uplifting. And 20 of us actually went on to write a book, an anthology um, of how we were uh, networking helped us through the pandemic. And that published in November of 2020 and became an Amazon bestseller. That's, you know, that's just such a making lemonade out of lemons situation, considering, you know, especially early on in the pandemic, when, you know, think back to March, April of 2020, when it first started to become apparent that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't gonna be over in a couple of weeks, this is gonna last a while. And just the fact that you guys were able to collaborate on on this book in such a short period of time also, that's just, that's an impressive feat. Um, and I don't even know the answer to this. Whose idea was it initially? Like who who really got the ball rolling? It was it was something we had talked about and it was really Sherry Bellitz's idea um, to create this anthology style uh, book. And it is rather amazing that we all came together. I, it really, everybody kind of checked their ego at the door, which is sort of wild when you think about a group of 20 uh, high achieving lawyers. Um, you know, we formed an LLC. Uh, we donate all the proceeds to charity every year, a charity that we select and vote on. Um, and things have just been fantastic. And, and it's been a great uh, publicity tool, obviously. It's also been great. Um, we've been able to attend different groups of us, different subsets have been able to attend various CLEs virtually around the country and talk about our book. And, um, it, you know, just the messages that I've gotten just myself from people around the country who've read it and say they've been inspired. It's, it's just worth its weight in gold in terms of making you feel good. Um, it's been a great project to have been involved with. And it's, it's one of those like just once in a lifetime, random, random opportunities that I'm glad I took advantage of. That's great. And, you know, I knew that Sherry was involved in it. Um, I did not realize that Sherry had really spearheaded it. So it's on brand for her both to take the initiative and also to not take credit for it. So 
remind me to bother Sherry about that the next time I talk to her. It really is. She's she's wonderful. She's a delight. Yeah. Um, Sherry's also one of those people that uh, that makes me feel like I'm not doing enough professionally because every I wake up in the morning and she already has, a, you know, a litany of stuff on LinkedIn and, you know, just and tons of engagement. Also, it's not just putting out content, but it's engagement, which is uh, which is a testament to her and her personality. Um, so, Kristen, you and I have something in common. We are both former prosecutors. Um, so I want to, if I can, I'd like to just kind of start at the beginning, and I'm going to ask you a twofold loaded question. When did you know that you wanted to be an attorney, and when did you know you wanted to be a prosecutor? So I think I knew I wanted to be an attorney when I was a child, and it became apparent that maybe math wasn't my forte. I was, you know, I was like, oh, doctor or lawyer. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think, too, back when I was growing up, I'm, I just turned 44. And, and when I was growing up, I think there was a big, I, I see a lot of difference between how it is now versus how when I was growing up. And, and girls that had any sort of, um, you know, leadership skills would sort of be told, a parent, you know, teachers would say to parents, oh, you need to watch her. She's sort of bossy. Uh, you know, she likes to argue. Um, you know, tongue-in-cheek comments about, oh, she should be a lawyer with how she likes to, you know, talk back or whatnot. Um, and that's unfortunate, but it put a good idea in my head. And I like to tell people that, you know, I, I used to get written up in school all the time for talking too much in class. And I'm, I'm glad that I've had a chance to take what was my greatest weakness and turn it into my greatest strength in terms of using that voice to advocate for others. But I would also say, of course, that as I've gotten older, I think my ability to listen does more for my effectiveness than, than my ability to talk. And, and I do have quite an ability to talk, but uh, I think wanting to be a prosecutor, I think that came into play during my, the summer before my senior year of college, I was back home in North Carolina from undergrad at Rutgers. And as part of a summer internship for the Eagleton Institute of Politics, I had to intern with an elected official. And so I interned with some local district court judges um, in my home county, and there was a lot of overlap with the prosecutor's office, and I watched them in court, and I was thinking, wow, that really spoke to me, um, and I think this is something that I want to do, um, and that's what really put the idea in my head. Um, and so from there, I mean, I knew, you know, I came back home to attend a state law school. I didn't want the debt load. I didn't want to have to go into private practice just to pay back loans and not really do what I wanted to. Um, and so, you know, once I went to law school, I realized, hey, this is what I want to be doing. I was interning pretty much every day during law school at the DA's office. Um, I would wear a suit to, to school and I was I, thinking back on it. I it was a little it was a little intense, um, <laughs> but then I'd leave I'd leave class and go to the DA's office and get to be, you know, be trying real cases. Um, when I was third year practice certified and uh, get to actually be trying cases in district court. Um, and I had such a great foundation. Um, and I think that's something that I would, I would emphasize to anybody who's thinking about that career path, where you learn how to be a prosecutor is everything. Because the duty of a prosecutor is so important because they are the ones who wear the white hats and the ones who have the ethical duty to seek justice, unlike any other sort of lawyer. That's such a huge distinction that where you learn how to prosecute is, is one of the most important things. 
And I was so lucky that when I interned for two and a half years in our in the DA's office in my home county, I had such an amazing mentor in the elected DA there. And something that he shared with me, um, it was a, it was a mantra of sorts. Um, he shared it with me, and I I put it down on a piece of paper and literally had it on my desk for every day of the 15 years I prosecuted. And it, it was, his mantra was this, there is a line beyond which I'm not willing to go to obtain a criminal conviction or keep my job. And you know, when you work in this business, you're an at-will employee, you know, you work at the pleasure of and mm -hmm. come in one day and it, you could be done. And that's just something that we sort of live with um, and understand. And I think having that moral compass and that understanding that, hey, you know what, if today's the day where somebody asks me to do something that I don't feel is right, I'm willing to walk. Um, and it makes it, it makes it a lot easier. And, you know, and the, the point that you make about prosecutors wearing the white hat and having, you know, the utmost discretion in, you know, what we bring, who we levy charges against and who we don't, the, you know, I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a second. Uh, my so I'm a former prosecutor. So is my wife. And I said to her, you know, not too long ago, like, aren't there any Netflix documentaries about a criminal who the cops think the guy did it? And then it turns out they were right. And he actually did do it. You know, it's it seems like popular culture. Um, you know, and I think that it's largely because it makes for good stories. They focus on the you know, the worst examples of prosecutorial discretion when, you know, when they charge somebody who turns out to later be exonerated for whatever reason. And when that happens, it's awful. Uh, and that'll segue into your new role, by the way. We'll we'll get to that in a, sure. in a little while. Sure. But, you know, the I was a prosecutor for six years and. I don't think I came across anybody at, at the DA's office in the Bronx, which was a high volume office where anybody felt that they had charged someone and convicted someone that really hadn't done what they had been accused of doing, at least in some shade of gray. Um, but the, that's the thing is before you get to the jury, before you get to the judge, it's up to the DA whether or not we're going forward, you know, and the 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 white hat aspect of it, you know, that that is something that you have to take seriously in that role because if you don't, you're in you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, and and I think that you know something you said kind of segues me into what I say to juries now when I'm picking juries as a defense attorney is that you know it's a moral choice that we made as a nation that it's better for one guilty person to go you know for, that for ten guilty people to go free than for one innocent person uh, to to be imprisoned. And um, so I, I think I would agree. And, and on the whole, I think, you know, there are plenty of instances where somebody is accused of something and there's plenty of evidence to back it up. And, and sure. I, I was really thankful and very fortunate to, for the majority of my time as a prosecutor, to have had a very kind of specialized caseload. I, I prosecuted... Um, basically most of my caseload was felony domestic violence and child sex cases and um, and homicide and with especially with the with the kid cases i was part of the investigation in north carolina da's don't run the investigation like i understand they do some some other places but i was on board with the police from right when the incident happened 
um, giving them advice the whole way through, you know, uh, you know, consulting with them on what our next steps needed to be. So these were prosecutions that I helped to build, which, you know, I had the utmost faith and confidence in, in these cases, which I was thankful about. It's not like I just picked up, you know, a file just ended up on my desk and I had no idea what, what had gone on the whole time. And so that was certainly helpful for me. You know, and uh, something you mentioned earlier, Kristen, that the role of of choosing the right mentor you know, it's you You see, you know, it's almost a cliche at this point. Don't pick a job, pick a boss. You know, you want somebody to learn from that, you know, really does care about training people and showing them the ropes and figuring out the right and wrong way to do things. And it sounds like you had that very early on. Yes, very early on. And I think when I when I look at, you know, the decision I made to leave and go into private practice, I think that um, that strong compass and, and feeling so strongly about my work and the foundation that had been laid for me in in prosecution and in criminal law as a whole um, certainly played a role in that. Now, one, one other question about early on in your career that that just picking up on a point that you made. So you were actually trying cases as a third year in law school. Yes. So in North Carolina, we have what's called the third year practice rule. And as long as you've taken, I uh, believe it's, you could do it when like halfway through law school, if you've taken a certain number of credit hours, you can be certified by the state bar under the supervision of a licensed attorney. So I was actually getting to try misdemeanor and traffic cases in our district court um, as a law oh, student. Wow. Yeah. That must've been terrifying at the time. <laughs> it was, but the nice part about it is it lets you work all the kinks out. And then when I started my first job as an assistant DA, everybody's like, how do you know how to try cases already? Um, and it just puts you one step ahead. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And it's funny too, because, you know, you're, they're looking at you like, oh my God, Kristen already knows how to try cases. And meanwhile, compared to them, you do, but compared to the attorney that you are now, you're, you're you know, there, there is, there really is an element of fake it till you make it early yeah. in your career. It's like, yeah. no, do I know what I'm doing? No, but my adversary doesn't know that. So I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to go through the motions, no yeah. pun intended. And yeah. then eventually, eventually you figure it out. Yeah. And you just don't let them see that you're, you're terrified. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there really is. And, you know, I, st and I still have that now. Um, you know, every, Every attorney, this for me anyway, my my worst nightmare is walking into a courtroom and making some kind of a motion in limine and the judge says, uh, Mr. Gibbons, what you just said completely contradicts the the Richmond case. Did you read? Do you even know what you're doing? You know, that's that's the nightmare because there always is that element of uncertainty of you. You can't know it all. There's always going to be some case out there that you should know and don't. And that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. That's just what uh, what gives me neuroses all day, every day. <laughs> but but neither here nor there. Um, so 15 years you put in at the DA's office. And now speaking for myself, one, one of my partners is fond of saying uh, everyone who's a DA thinks they're going to be a DA forever. And then life happens and you can't. And I had that experience where, you know, my 
my wife got pregnant with our first child. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, I need to go get a real job. But that was after about six years at the DA's office where you're thinking mortgage and things like that. You hung around for 15 years. So another two-part question, what prompted you to hang around for 15 years? And then what prompted the next step for you? I think it was a it was it was a confluence of of multiple factors. Um, you know, I think that private practice. I'm not going to lie; it's something I had always wondered about. Right? I always wondered, you know, could I hack it in private practice? You know, I'd sit there in court and watch attorneys sometimes and think, "Gosh, I could I could do that. That's not entirely difficult." Um, you know, I was just always very nervous about running a business. And on the other hand, I didn't want to go work for someone because when you've, you know, been a prosecutor for 15 years, you pretty much know what you're doing. You have some autonomy. And I didn't want to be in a situation where I was working for someone because I don't think that would go would have gone over very well. Um, and but but it was the business part that had always held me back from kind of taking that next step in the exploration of, of private practice. And then um, in 2018, 2019, I had the chance to serve as the volunteer president of the Junior League of Greensboro. And the Junior League is um, a charitable organization of, of women um, all over the country and all over the world. Um, and as president of our chapter, I was in essence serving as the volunteer CEO of a corporation with 800 members. And it the training and experience that I got in how to run a business was incredible. Um, and I realized, first of all, you know, QuickBooks is not that complicated. And <laughs> even, even if, you know, it challenges me now, you know, the best, I always joke, the best $200 a month I spend is my bookkeeper <laughs> and she does my QuickBooks for me. Um, so it's really not the end of the world. Um, but it gave me the experience um, in, in how to lead a business. And then I thought to myself, wow, if I can do that, there's no reason why I can't open up shop for myself. Um, and around that time in the summer of 2019, um, one of our district court judges passed away unexpectedly, you know, and that was just another thing that on top of it got me thinking, I don't know what's you know happening next year or the year after that. And, and I don't want to get to the end of my time as a lawyer and think, you know, look back on things. I don't like to live in the world of regret and think, what if I had done that? I bet I could have been good, but I'll never know. Um, and I think that coupled with I wasn't getting the traction in terms of my salary um, at the DA's office that, you know, with the amount of effort I was putting in, um, it wasn't uh, coming back right. And obviously I'd worked there long enough. When you work a public service job, there are other factors like quality of life that are always going to be, you know, more of a more of a draw because it's you're working for the government. But I was kind of at a place where I'm thinking, you know, for the experience that I have, uh, the time I've put in and the certifications I've had, you know, it's time for me to do this and to and to write my own ticket and see what that yields. Yeah, the, um, you know, the quality of life, the hours and the in New York, anyway, the benefits in terms of medical insurance and that kind of thing, it's as good as it gets. But, you know, nobody says I want to be rich someday. <laughs> Let me be a prosecutor. It's, uh, it's, it's not quite how it works. No. Um, so so then you decide to hang out a shingle. And this is we're talking late 2019. Yeah, so my last day in the DA's office was September 30th, 2019, and my first day in private practice with my own shop was October 1st, 
Wow. So, so you take this, basically, you walk the plank mm-hmm. into uncertainty, are still trying to get your footing, and then the world stops. That's exactly right, because we were about five months into the pandemic when everything, sh- or into my private practice, when things shut down because of the pandemic. Um, but I will say, you know, I had already gotten a decent amount of cases. I came out at a time, I, I, I timed my departure uh, so that our county's indigent defense committee, which I now serve on actually, could consider my application for the court appointed list. So I came out um, on every single court appointed list in our county, adult and juvenile, misdemeanors up to high level felonies, um, and you know, started taking obviously retained cases right away. And it was great because the phone started ringing right away. Um, because, you know, if there's an advantage, it's it's you've cultivated these relationships for 15 years, um, and that's when I realized, you know, that that's really what it's all about. And it's not about what side we're on. It's about the relationships that we've built with people and whether people trust us, whether they're going to send us business. Um, and I'm so thankful. I mean, I get referrals from other lawyers. I get referrals from prosecutors. I get referrals from law enforcement, from clients at the jail, um, you know, and, and former prosecutor, that's a big sell with a lot of people who are charged with crimes. It's a big sell. I could see that. Cause you know, like, okay, I'm going to be going up against the prosecutor. I know how they think. Yeah. And when you say that, it's not a pitch. There's truth to it. You know, you really do know. And you know, I remember when, when I left the DA's office and I've never done criminal practice. I've been just on the civil end since then. But everybody who leaves the DA's office, um, and I assume this is not unique to, to New York. If there's one thing I know how to do, it's cross-examine a police officer because I know what's supposed to be in the paperwork and yeah. it never is. And, you know, and that doesn't mean... Uh, does that equate to innocence or guilt? No, but it can equate to reasonable doubt because if because paperwork is the whole thing. Um, so you have a trust relationship with a lot of former prosecutors, a lot of you you worked with police detectives, et cetera, for years and years. And the referrals came right at right away. They did. They did. And they come in higher volume now, but they certainly did, um, you know, right right when I stepped out. Um, which was so gratifying. It was it was really really wonderful. Um, you know, I actually got a referral from a former judge, and it it kept my lights on for the first two or three months of of private practice. Um, wow. It's it's amazing. I'm I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful. But it also underscores something interesting. You know, when when people, I'm generally very encouraging when you know youngsters who are getting ready to graduate law school say you know i'm considering hanging out a shingle and i say you need to pump the brakes on that because i'm only learning my learning curve was on the business side only because everything the law that translated real easily you know Mm -hmm. i think prosecutors who worry about oh i don't know how i could talk to a client it's real easy to talk to a criminal defendant it's very easy um but the business part of it, that's where my learning curve was. I cannot imagine for the life of me having to learn both those things at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know. And also you have to worry about referrals too, because when you're, you know, you're brand spanking new straight out of school, wh- where are your referrals coming from? Well, you know, and think of it like this. When you're a prosecutor, your day to day at the office, roughly a hundred percent of your time is spent practicing law. When you're running a business, 
what is it, 40% of your time is spent practicing law. There's so many other things, you know, there's, there's hiring, there's HR, there's keeping the lights on, there's getting the prop, the appropriate insurance in place. You know, there's just a million things that to your point, if you have to learn that while learning how to be a lawyer, yep. uh, you're just walking into a world of pain. <laughs> yeah. And it could be and it, potentially a recipe for complete disaster. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, that what's the there's a phrase that I like to use all the time, you know, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> yes. But but do you want to have that bad judgment when you've just taken out, a, you know, a significant loan to open up a business? You know, it's it's not the time to to be rolling the dice, so to speak. No. And so uh, I always encourage people, you know, work for somebody else, learn the law, learn how to run a business if that's what you're interested in. And then you know, get a few years under your belt and then go do it. Yeah. You know, just the analogy that comes to mind, it's, you know, before, before I got married, I remember going to, you know, other people's weddings and saying like, okay, I like that. I like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. And that's, there's a part of, you know, you should be doing that as an attorney, as you're coming up of like, okay, I see what this trial attorney did, the way he's talking to the jury, the way she's talking to the jury that I'm going to steal. I don't like the way he did that. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's just an element of, you know, panning for gold, so to speak, where you're taking the good and eliminating the bad. That's exactly right. And that never, honestly, at least for me, that never stops. You know, whenever I have a spare few minutes and I'm at the courthouse, I'll pop into a courtroom and watch trials. I'd love it because you never know, um, you know, what gems you're going to walk away with. Um, and also I had to scope out opposing counsel because for so long, I might know these people. I might've been calling coworkers with them. I was minding my own business in my own courtroom when my trial partner and I had a week of court. I wasn't in everybody else's business to see how they handled their stuff. So I had to scope out my former coworkers as opposing counsel. So especially you'll go sit in their courtrooms, watch them try cases, figure out what their um, strengths are, what their weaknesses are, um, what the best way is to approach them about stuff. So definitely. Okay. So in terms of trial practice right now in, in greater Greensboro, North Carolina, you know, COVID is, is on its way out, but it's not quite out yet in New York where there's, there's still mask mandates and things like that. How are things in, in your neck of the woods? Is it, uh, is it back to normal? Is it almost there? What's going on? I think here people are trying to pretend that we're back to normal and we're definitely not. Um, I, I'm still wearing a mask at the courthouse. Mm -hmm. um, the mask requirement was dropped about a month and a half ago, um, but it remains an option if you want to. Um, our numbers have been trending back up, which is disturbing. Um, but it, it is troubling that most people here are just walking around like it's no big deal. Now, have you had the occasion to try any cases with masked jurors? I did. So um, we had resumed, let's see, jury trials stopped in March of 20 or in May of, no, it was March of 2020 um, and resumed around the beginning of 2021. I had a jury trial, I had a week long jury trial um, it was an attempted murder trial in May of 2021. Um, the jurors were masked. 
counsel was masked, my client was masked, uh, although I made him get up at the beginning of my closing and stand with me and made him take his mask off because I wanted them to see him because he was like 19 years old and I wanted them to look at his baby face. Sure. Um, but it was it's fascinating um, because you don't realize how much you are watching jurors' expressions and how they're reacting to your questions. Um, you know, you can still see body language, how someone's sitting in their chair, uh, whether they're looking more closed off, but those expressions. Um, Smirks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard. I have not tried a case to verdict since COVID, but I did pick a jury uh, about a month ago. The case settled shortly thereafter. But you talk about, you know, you try to read eyes, mm -hmm. but that's easier said than done. And, you know, I'm on the civil side when I report to to our business partners, to our clients, you know, and, and I'm actually intrigued as to how you talk to clients about jury trials in this context also, because what I will tell clients is, look, a jury trial is already a very unpredictable animal. You never know what a jury is going to do. And now not only do you not know what a jury is going to do, but the ability to read them and to fly a kite, so to speak, during the trial is even less than it once was. Now, obviously not asking you to, to breach any confidentiality here, but what do you say to a client who, you know, okay, okay, Kristen, what are my chances here? How do you think the jury is taking the case in? And, and I would say, you know, it's impossible to predict. And, and even with no masks, it's impossible to predict, too. You know, you can only give your best estimate. And, and still, I always tell clients, you know, if any lawyer is ever guaranteeing you the outcome of a jury trial, you need to get up and walk out of their office right away because they're just reaching their hand in their pot in your pocket and, and, and taking your money. Um, it, it, you know, I, yeah, it's it's an interesting it's a really interesting thing. Um and now it's fascinating with the masks optional. Um, it's fascinating. And I actually think I commented this on one of Sherry Bellitz's LinkedIn posts about it, since she does so much about surrounding juror psychology. Sure. Um, now that we have masks optional, that sort of opens up a whole other can of worms about potential assumptions that can be made with mm. respect to thoughts of jurors. I'll, just, I'll leave it at that. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> very diplomatically stated and we'll, we'll, we will leave it at that. Um, now speaking of jury trials in general, let's stop talking about COVID now. Um, cause we've both had enough of that. Uh, can you tell me for the, whether for a good or a bad result, a time where, Something that happened during a jury trial where you really took that away as a specific learning experience and it's something that you still, you know, still use to this day. Um, I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is. A murder case that I tried back in 2007 uh, with my trial partner. And it was a case that involved uh, the decedent was a baby and oh. who was in the care of a babysitter. Um, and the babysitter was on trial for first degree murder. And the jury returned a guilty verdict of, off of felony murder, child abuse. Um, and the judge actually overturned the jury verdict 
after the verdict was given. Wow. Yeah. And the state took an appeal. Um, the attorney general's office took the case and the court, our court of appeals actually upheld the trial judge. Um, it was bizarre is kind of the most diplomatic thing I can say about that. Um, it was very and bizarre. And presumably the family was in the courtroom when all this happened. They were. And it was a oh. three-week three long trial, which is, I mean, that's a pretty long trial for North Carolina. I have to laugh. You know, this, this Depp Heard trial has been going on so long now. We don't have cases that drag out that long here in North Carolina generally. Um, mm -hmm. So it was a three-week murder trial, which was a significant chunk of time. Uh, the jury was out for three days. And what was really, um, and, and certainly that was, I didn't have, that was one of my first jury trials. And it rocked me to my core. Um, and it made me consider getting out of the profession. I'm glad I didn't, but it made me consider that. And I don't well, think just the, emo the emotional investment in something like that, you know, that's, and this is very early on in your career. You'd been practicing just a couple of years. I was like three and a half years in at that point. And I don't, I've actually never talked about it publicly before, but, um, it, it certainly shaped how I saw the system at that time. And it's, um, and it was fascinating to me too. It clearly shaped what other people saw of the system because my trial partner and I got so many messages from jurors on the case. Some jurors called the DA's office to seek us out, to talk, to find out what on earth happened. Um, my trial partner, uh, I ran into one of the uh, jurors at the gym. Uh, he was crying and upset. Um, you know, and my trial partner had run into somebody in public as well. So it was, it was a very interesting and, and disturbing thing to have happen, I guess, so early in, in one's career. Um, but I think it also toughened me up a lot. Um, and I think everything, I'm, like I said, I'm glad I didn't step away from my job yeah. after that. Um, I'm glad that I, I kept going um, because what I took from that just informed every day afterwards. Um, cause it was, it was a very emotional thing. Um, but that's probably, and, and that's, you know, that's such a once in a career kind of thing to have happen and for it to have happened so early. I'm like, wow, I guess the rest of my career is just going to be like falling action at this point. I was just going to say, like, in terms of toughening you up, if nothing else, that has to just give you perspective mm -hmm. of, you know, the next time you're on trial, if something doesn't go well and you think, oh, my God, the sky's falling. It's like, well, you know what? It's not as bad as as this other one. You know, it just it enables you to take a step back. But that. Oh, my that's goodness. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So if you, you try to find a silver lining somewhere, but that's I, I would imagine that you didn't have that silver lining the next day. Definitely not. Definitely not. But that is true. It's, you know, everything wild that happens because, you know, you, you know, from going to court, you know, crazy wild things happen in courtrooms. And the more things that happen to you, the better suited you are to adjust in the future. And it's like nothing really, you know, once once enough things have happened, it's pretty hard to phase me at this point. Wow, that's wild. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about the 
the uh, the advantage of finding a mentor early on. And I'm bringing that up because you can't use that as an answer to my next question. Uh, what is a piece of advice that you would give to a young starting out trial attorney as you know, right out of law school, whether it's at a DA's office or working in private practice for a firm? Your credibility is everything. And that law license that's hanging on your wall is not worth anybody. I used to tell people that every single day. Um, it is not. Credibility is the only thing that you have in this line of work. Um, and, and it goes to those relationships that we build with others. And it, it takes a career to build a reputation. Um, and that can it can all be destroyed really quickly. Um, the first time somebody thinks that you're not credible, um, you're going to have problems. Now, when you mentioned earlier, um, and it, if I'm messing up the paraphrasing, my apologies, but you know, to have a mentor who, you know, would have the, the, the line or the, the metaphor, whatever you want to call it of, you know, this line, I will not cross as a prosecutor. Do you find yourself having the same kind of motto as a defense attorney? It's a little bit different. Certainly, um, you know, the, our ethical duty is different. Zealous representation versus uh, minister of justice, but it's, there are, some definite parallels. Um, you know, I'm not going to go file, a, you know, a frivolous motion um, if there's no basis for that. And I'll tell someone that to their face. And then if you want to fire me, by all means, tell the judge about it. Um, so there's some stuff I'm definitely not going to abide um, because I have to maintain my credibility. And I tell my clients that I'm like, you know, I've, I have to maintain my credibility for the court so that I can effectively represent you and all my other clients as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm but never, never going to take a cheap shot because it, it not only will get in the way of my representation of you, but it's going to screw things up for all the other clients that come after you as well, because nobody in the DA's office is going to is going to negotiate with me or listen to me. Fair enough. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's interesting, too, because the they you are wearing a different hat in terms of, you know, as a prosecutor, there's there's your as far as not having a line that you'll cross, you absolutely need that to govern yourself as a prosecutor. But when you're a defense attorney, you know, you're, we're talking about liberty here, you know, and it's just it's a different uh, a different goal. So I could see having, uh, you know, a slightly different outlook in terms of, you know, the 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 master that we're serving, so to speak. Um, you know, the, it's funny though the uh, the I mentioned earlier about aren't there any movies that have that show a prosecutor in a good light. The one, and the one that just came to mind, you know, is the, the greatest scene in my cousin Vinny, in my personal opinion, is towards the end of the movie, the sheriff finds finds out that he actually does have the two wrong guys that have been charged. You know, it's not it's not the karate kid and his buddy, it's these two other guys. And what does the prosecutor do? You know, does the prosecutor still go hell bent for leather trying to trying to get a conviction? No, it's the prosecutor dismisses all charges. We don't want a conviction. We want the right conviction. Yep. You know, and there's there, there 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 really should be an element of seeking justice in this job as 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 jaded as I get every now and again, especially on the civil end. But uh that's neither here nor there. Let me put you on the spot now. I, I always ask this of my guests on on podcasts. Um, is there a legally themed movie, book, TV show 
that comes to mind for you as something that you would recommend, not so much for realism, but you know, if someone says to you, hey, hey, you're an attorney, what what should I watch? What should I read that would really, you know, that that would would really light me on fire in terms of, you know, of of what you do for a living? I guess, well, goodness. Um, and I say this, I, I still can't stop watching Law and Order SVU. And it was oh. like, that was like what I did for so long. Um, and I, even on the other side, I, I still watch it religiously. Um, I, I really, I just really enjoy that show. And it's, it's such a, it's so, such an accurate depiction of a lot of, obviously we don't, you know, there's, there's not an investigation solving a case in an hour in real life, but it's just, there are some very accurate depictions of things, um, and I always enjoy, it was never, it was never a show where I had to suspend my, you know, willing suspension of disbelief, mm -hmm. um, which I see with too many legal type things. Yeah. The, what I like about the way the whole law and order franchise operates is for the most part, they don't get so much into the, the personal lives of the prosecutors and the, it's like, stick to the story, yep. you know, and the, the one thing my, when, whenever anyone asks me what TV shows most accurately portray what a prosecutor does, I always say it's a cross between Law and Order and if you remember the show Night Court from the '80s, because Law and Order does get the, you know, the the cadence of how of you know literally getting into the evidence and burdens of proof and that kind of thing. But the difference between Law and Order and real life is. Apparently on Law and Order, Jack McCoy is only working on one case at a time. Exactly. Whereas, you know, in, in, in Night Court, there's a whole stack and, you know, there's there's always an element of that. Um, so those those two come to mind. But, yeah, the, you know, S, SVU, to have done that for as long as you did, um, you know, that's just that's got to be an emotional toll after a while. It is, and there's definitely not enough that's taught to prosecutors about vicarious trauma, um, and and there there should be more of that. There needs to be more of that because it's it's heavy stuff, um, and I've seen some people really crack under that under that weight. And I think it should be both for police who are investigating it and for prosecutors who are taking those cases to trial. I do think they should have a maximum time period where you get rotated out, kind of like they do with vice and people who work undercover in vice. You've got to rotate out because too long doing that stuff, it, it will mess with your head. You know, and you're so right, because the when you're in it, when you're the prosecutor doing it or when you're the detective doing it, there's there's an element of almost machismo, you know, like I can handle this. I don't need I don't need any kind of leave from 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 dealing with this i'm handling my business mm -hmm. but that just you know buries the trauma deeper and deeper and that can you know over time that can really add up definitely well Kristen, this has been uh a great interview thank you so much for coming on it's it's um it's always great to talk to to fellow former prosecutors and the fact that you were able to you know, transition into the private sector right on the on the you know eclipse of a pandemic, and to basically hit the ground running. That's a testament to you and to the relationships you've built 
you know, so congratulations. And again, thank you so much for your time and coming on and sharing some of your, some of your stories with us. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate you having me. Thank you.